0: Okay, so we're live, welcome back to the Magic Minds Podcast intro number two, back in the studio, fucking fantastic, I'm actually loving this, uh, some uh, achievement isn't it go from a uh, Zoom H1 to uh, an actual studio, deadly, it's fantastic, right, we got amazing, amazing feedback from our last interview with Marco Keefe, uh, Autism Awareness, I really loved it, for that knows me. I've got an absolute soft spot for disabilities or working disabilities, but just not just disabilities, but also marginalized groups, You know, anybody that's struggling. And hopefully that's what the podcast is doing. The shows are quite eclectic. I try to do a varied uh, topic just so you get an understanding and a flavor of what it's like for other people in their lives, things that you might never come across, things that just come onto my thought process. I'd love to do an interview on that. And then it'll broaden people's horizons because it's most certainly broadened my horizons. So I was delighted with the feedback. We got some amount of uh, attention on, on Facebook. But it's not all about that. It's not for the attention. It's for the awareness of that cause, the awareness of the podcast, the awareness of all the other episodes, the idea that people might be able to. It's like a lark of, I think, of little nuggets. So yeah, uh, spread the word. Tell people about our podcast. Tell them about that interview. If anybody that's, ...struggling around autism or any kind of disabilities... ...to check out our podcast. Because there's some absolutely belters... ...and I'm not just saying that... ...but I really believe in the episodes that we've done. we sixty 64 now. So uh, yeah, that was an absolute cracking one. Uh, our interview today is with Ken Doyle. Do you remember the band Bagatelle somewhere in Dublin? Well, he's a friend of... Uh, ...or he's a family member of Frank. Frank uh, gave me... for We've done an interview with Frank Fears, my friend. We've done an interview with Frank. Frank has been a a friend of mine, over the years, we keep in contact, and he said me, well, do you know what, Ken Doyle would be a man, get him on the podcast, he's a cracking lad, he's a cousin of his, brilliant stories, and uh, he didn't let us down, I was fucking, it was fantastic, went out to his house, and uh, done the interview, but 20 minutes into, I realised, that the camera wasn't rolling, I had the, the GoPro back then, and I hadn't, I was on my own, and you know, doing all the setup, and I didn't press it properly. And we're after going through I mean, done 20 minutes of absolute brilliant interview, and then all of a sudden realized that the thing wasn't fucking recording. But well, he was pure superstar. This was, didn't bat an he He's like, let's do it again, let's do it again. And then yeah, we went over again. I well, asked yeah, the same question, but we went down a whole different road and t- fucking, totally different stuff, but just equally as brilliant. So I, I didn't feel like a loss. And usually I'd be kicking myself. Oh, there was lovely nuggets in there. But I remembered some of the stuff that we covered. And I, I kind of circled around and went back. And he answered them. And oh, I was just cracking. And uh, talking about his, his life and Bagatelle. His love for music. And it really shone through. And there's lots of people I've talked to over the last number of years. That do things purely for the love. of it. It's not money driven. It's not fame driven. He just absolutely loves Music, he just loves playing instruments, he loves being in a band, that's just part of his, his, his DNA, it's part of his blood, and you could smell that off him. He just, he just oozed in, it was fantastic, very inspiring for me, very, very powerful. I loved it, like, I just loved talking. If somebody talked to me, he went into the Bible, cars, boats, airplanes, and he got so much passion. I do be in awe of them, and, and that was like that for me. And then he finished off the interview with telling me. That there's ghosts in his house, fucking ghosts, I nearly shit myself. Uh, so yeah, there's ghosts in the gaff, he lives in Bray, he told me a few stories around that. It's a cracking interview, hopefully you enjoy it. Yeah, get in contact, let us know what you, you think of the interview, send us your your uh your comments or any kind of feedback, we really appreciate them. Uh so that's that interview. Where are we at now? Yeah, as always. Thanks to Noel Riley from Media Graphics, absolutely love the work that they do. If you need any graphic design, check them out. They're absolutely sound. He does my backdrop. He does our artwork. He is my best mate, so I will stand over and endorse any work he does because he's a legend. And he also was instrumental in starting this podcast. He reviewed me interviews at the start. He gives me constant feedback about how I do things, whether it be the videos. Whether it be a setup, he's always like plugging away in the background, helping me out. So he's not only a but he's a mentor and he's a good egg. So check out Real Media Graphics. Uh, also check us out on Facebook. We're doing loads of vlogs. I've been throwing out videos. I've done a, a couple of interviews at the Liberty's Festival for Halloween there a couple of weeks ago. And I've done about 19, 18, 19 interviews just asking people what's the magic of the liberties, and the fucking cracker had was brilliant. The nuggets of gold that I got with the people that I interviewed was deadly. And um, we throw them out on social media. So give us a follow on social media on Instagram or Facebook. You can add me as a friend, or you can add our Instagram account that's at Magic Minds Podcast, or mine is at MacBook1976. Add us, we really love to get our following followers up. Again, it's not about the, the affirmations or the followers. We really want to, to spread the awareness because I, I do believe in the interviews we've done. I've got some cracking interviews coming up, like this one, then I've a biodynamic psychotherapist next, and then we've got a couple of liberties legends coming up. Uh, so yeah, we've got some cracking interviews, so I'd love to get the awareness. So It's always about spreading the message. And same with the videos I do on social media that I throw out my own thoughts, these are just a collection of the readings, the work I've done on myself, the interviews, there's some uh, there's some really good uh, vlogs. I've got some vlogs, we call got them vlogs. Vlogs, yeah, they're with, with, with pearls of wisdom that I have acquired from other people and then I'm just passing on. It's just a shared learning, you know? So yeah, so there you go. Check this interview, let us know what you think. And as always, mind your little self in service of the rest of the world. What does that mean? Be kind to you, and when you are kind to yourself, nine times out of 10, you will be more open to being kind to other people, you will say kind things yourself, and the chances are you will say kind things to other people. So that's what that means. How do you implement this Start by recognizing the good about yourself, recognize the good things that you possess, and remind yourself of them. And then, in service, as I always say, in service of the rest of the world, you'll be a kinder of person. So there you go. Check out the Magic Minds podcast stories that the power were Have a fantastic day. Bye bye. Okay, so we're live. Welcome back to the Magic Minds Podcast. I'm Matt Bourke. On the show today, I'm joined by a special guest, Ken Doyle. Ken, what's the crack?
1: Matt, how you doing? Hello everybody and uh, hello audience. Thank you very much for 41 years.
0: (laughs) 41 years of Bagatelle. I've asked uh, Ken to come on the show because he's a member of an amazing Irish band, an institution in Ireland, uh, Bagatelle. Wow, absolutely incredible. I've been listening to the music today and it brought back so many memories, nostalgic, just fantastic.
1: It's incredible. I mean, here we are. In August of this year, we actually became 41 years of age. Thanks, I have to say, to the wonderful, incredible audience we've built up over the years. Thanks for all you've given, Bagatelle, and that has been quite a lot.
0: 41 years, Jesus Christ. 41 please. years.
1: It feels like eight or nine, by the way. <laughs> it Does doesn't, it? Feel like, doesn't feel like 41. 41 years. 41 years. It is. It is scary when you think about it, you know.
0: And as I say, it is an institution like the likes of what we talked earlier about, you know, Jay Ryan, a fm you know, Bagatelle, they're, they're just iconic, like, who doesn't know Summer of Dublin and, you know, uh, Trump and
1: Yeah, I think it was a few months before he died when he said uh, he reckoned in a thousand years they will still be playing The streets of New York, or sorry, not the, the town I love so well, sorry, the fields of Wright and Summer of Dublin, so thank you Jerry Ryan you were a good man he was a
0: good guy wasn't he as yeah. I said to you earlier uh, I used to listen to him when I, when I worked in the butchers and it's just the memories and he was just he was just an ordinary decent skin wasn't he really
1: he was an ordinary guy as I heard them saying he never had a thing a programme prepared he just let it happen as in automatically he wasn't one of these guys who was worked out he just he just let, let it happen you know let it unfold as he was going on but um, we did a we did a when he was a very young guy in RTE we did a thing in the top hat of Leary. that'll tell you how long ago that was, and he was a, it was called Nonstop pop and he was introducing it and uh, we had a great bit of skit with him down there introducing saying very oh, gorgeous looking fellas and all that he was saying to us you know? <laughs> <laughs> he was a character character
0: taking a, taking a piss, <laughs> uh, before we get into and I meant to ask you this earlier is there a song or a film or a period in your life that, that's very significant here you that you'd like to share with me
1: there are so many and i really mean that I, I, people when i've been interviewed from time to time on radio they say what's your favorite song i said that's an impossible thing to answer there's so much incredible music there's so much music that has influenced me there's so many songs that mean so much to me i couldn't actually pick one there's so much you know there's so much out there everything from trad music to steely dan to it's not King Cole's. Uh, you know, it's, it's just it's so much.
0: Is it mood dependent? Is it based on...
1: No, I, I actually, you know, it's funny thing, when you play music, you don't really sit down. The only time I'd listen to music is when we're traveling in the car, I'd put in. But at home, I'd be watching documentaries like the History Channel or Discovery or stuff like that. But I wouldn't be listening to music so much, so much at home. But on the way in the car, I do listen to music. And a lot of the... I'm a huge fan of 80s music, actually. Okay. And that's not saying I only like 80s music. Yeah. I like... I like John McCormick. I like everybody. I can't think of... There's a lot of songs that mean a lot to me, but I couldn't pick one. There's so many, you know. Oh, they're time, we've, we've they're got... like timelines to my life. and yeah. Births, marriages, deaths, crack, everything is in there, you know, a whole lot.
0: Brilliant. So before we get into the, the Bagatella stuff, give us a little uh, insight to life before that, what you were doing before you you got into Bagatella and what led you up to music or where did the the love for music and that period of your life where did that come from give Mm -hmm. us a history
1: Um. well when I went to school I went to school in Christian Brothers and they were absolute uh, savages to me and to my classmates as well I still meet some of my classmates out there and we recount some of the horrible tales I couldn't wait to get out of school so I was out of school I think by about 12 or 13 I was gone and then I went at the time you could actually work you know um, I went to work in a place called Shannon Caravans down here at the harbour Um. And I worked there for about six months, I think. And then after that, I left and I got a job working for the late Porig Savage, who used to own Savage's garage. And his his brother himself and his brother were good friends of mine, lovely guys as well. Both of them are now deceased, unfortunately. And from that, uh, the station master at the time, Sam Benville, uh, used to get his car filled up there with petrol. And he said to me, you're wasting your time. Why don't you come over to me and get a job in the railway? He said, you, be, you could become an engine driver. You could become whatever, as guard on the train. He said, you won't get anywhere here. And I said, well, actually, that's very good. If you, I'll take you up on that. So I went over. And he set me up to work in Killiney Railway Station when I was 15, I think. And uh, I have to say, it was it was a great thing for me. I loved it. I'm meeting all the people up there. At the time now, you mean the really grand people... Were the most regular people, like Mister Jemison from Jemison Whiskey He come down in a kind of a red tweed suit with the hat and everything, a big moustache, and what a lovely man, you know. No matter who he was with, he would always acknowledge you. Where some of the other people would acknowledge you when there was nobody around, and when they were with friends, they kind of go, "Oh, your yeah, man," you know. What is like, that all about with
0: people? I, I can't get Mister uh,
1: Packing and Watch. All these double-barrelled name people—they were all there, and they, the people, the, the, the kind of higher end. Were the most normal people, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were great. But I became friends with them all. I, uh, the hotel up there, the, the Kalini Court Hotel, I became friends with the uh, Niall Kenny, who owned that at the time. And uh, I had great times with them, with the staff and everything, because they used to get the train all the time. Um, But music was always there. And where the music really started was, my mother uh, sang all her life, you know, till she passed away when she was 80. When I all my, throughout my life she sang she sang when uh, she was pregnant on my brother Jerry and he's a very musical as well and I think the music came from her my, my old man would sing when he'd have a few drinks on him and he'd sing Danny Boy or one of these things or songs from when he was in the army in the emergency you know uh, Steady Boys and Step Together and stuff like that but um, I, when I was a very young guy about maybe six uh, he was going he was a very handy man and he was going out to work for a, a man up the road. He used to, People used to ask him to do things because he was so good with his hands. He was really good. He was a brilliant carpenter, all that stuff. Wood turning. He could do anything. And uh, this man called Mr. Emerson asked him would he come up and fix something for him. He said, nice set, King, and I go with you. And he said, yeah, come on. I went up and uh, working away from Mr. Emerson and giving him pliers and hammers and stuff like that. And... Uh, The next thing, I was being a curious young kid. I walked around and there was a shed at the side of the house and there was a piano. So I was tinkling away on the piano. And Mr. Emerson came out to my father and he said to him, that young man of yours is very musical. He said, do you want that piano? And he said, because we're trying to get rid of it. And he said, well, if you don't mind, if you don't want it. He said, no, i have been trying to get rid of it for weeks. So we got a friend of ours with a van. The piano was brought to the house and then everybody used to plink and plonk away on the piano, uh, you know, to figure things out and stuff like that and try and play the melody of the songs that you'd hear on the radio and maybe Radio Luxembourg and all that. These hit songs from yeah, back in the day yeah, and all yeah. that with Pete Murray, the DJ and all these these people. And that's really where everybody around the house uh, kind of started to, to play music. But we weren't really playing. We were just kind of tinkering with stuff. We never, I love music so much and music was such a part of my life. I never thought about actually playing it for real. You know, never thought, it just never occurred to me. Because I'd want to hear the Beatles' latest thing, the Stones, what are they coming out with now? All these great bands, Manfred, Mann. you know, what's the offering now? And uh, one day, my brother Martin, who, Martin Doyle Flutes, he's a flute maker now down in Clare and he sells his flutes all over the world, very high-end stuff. All the champions use his flutes Uh, he brought home an old banjo we got off a guy for a couple of quid and he started playing traditional tunes on it. And even though we had come from my mother's background, which was like all the the amateur dramatical societies and all that she used to be in and uh, school plays and stuff when she was a kid, she was always a great singer. Down in her hometown, they used to call her the star because she could sing, she could dance and she taught everybody how to do all this. But... um. He started playing traditional tunes on the banjo and when he got good enough, which was very quick, he we used to go around to places like the Dunalon Hotel, Jim, well, Jim Doherty's Tavern at the time, Jim Doyle's, the Eagle House around the corner, all these old bars, Harbour Bar, and we used to play the traditional, well he'd played the traditional tunes and that's the first time I saw a mandolin and I'd never seen a mandolin up close and personal before. And I said, I love that instrument. I love the sound of it because the double strings. It was lovely. It's
0: a lovely sound off the mandolin. Beautiful isn't sound.
1: It? So I went. I went around Dublin looking for a mandolin. they never heard of a mandolin, and then I decided to check out the pawn shops. So it was a pawn shop on Gardner Street called Goodwins at the time, long since knocked down. And I said to him, "Do you have a mandolin?" He said, "What is a mandolin?" I said, "It's a small instrument." He said, "There's a funny thing out the back. There has been there for years. I don't know what it is." So. <laughs> He went out the back, he brought in this sh- case with about 25 years of dust on it. He had a wet cloth and he said, I'm going to clean this up now, you know. Cleaned the dust off it and opened it up and there was a beautiful pear back mandolin. And I said, oh yeah, that's that's a mandolin all right, you know. I said, how much do you want for it? He says, been there a long time. He said, I don't know, what's it worth to you? I said, well, have 20 quid. Not 20 quid, take it away with you. And
0: was that a lot of money back then? It was a
1: fair few, Bob. At the time, I think, on the railway, I was earning 7 quid a week. So that'll show Jeez. you. Now, I wasn't getting adult money. I was, I yeah, was yeah, on junior yeah. money. Still three but weeks an adult money. take-home pay at the time was 14 quid a week. So you uh, like to raise a so family. Three weeks wages.
0: Yeah, to pay for
1: a house, all that stuff. Jeez. So I got What's the mandolin and uh, I started learning it. And uh, then i go down with Martin to the pubs and we'd do, jump in with the lads in the sessions and we'd be playing away. And then while I was working on the railway, my younger brother, Jerry, who's now a great musician with a brilliant fiddle player. He got the mandolin because he wasn't, he was younger than me and he wasn't working or anything. He practiced morning, noon and night on the mandolin. And then I realized he's actually better than me on it. So I said, right, you hang on to the mandolin and I'll get a guitar. And it was a friend of ours over from America. He was heading back called Bob Denton. And he had this beautiful ovation guitar, which is round back, like a parabolic shape, like your ear type of thing shape Mm -hmm, he owned a helicopter factory from the the place called the Carmen Corporation as in now the guy who designed the guitar Mm -hmm. and he was a guitar player as well and he made these ovations and they're still huge Glen Campbell used to play them a lot and he sold me this guitar and I had only got 30 quid saved at the time he said look when you get the rest of it send it over to me but I said you're going to be waiting 6 or 7 months I don't care send it over in 6 or 7 months I gave him the 30 quid I'd saved. He gave me the guitar. And sure enough, six or seven months later, I sent him the balance over and he sent me back a beautiful letter to say, man, you've no idea how good your timing is. That 30 quid saved my life when I got it. (laughs) So it's great. I still have the ovation down there and it's a beautiful guitar. And, you know, because I'm kind of working with the band and playing bass and that, and have so many guitars and so many basses, it's very hard to... to, even play it these days you know what I mean you yeah. just don't get time yeah. so that that really was it and then we had a band called the Doyles and myself Martin and Jerry used to go around and we used to be asked to play at the old folks you know we used to be asked to play at different things They They'd hold stuff in the Royal Hotel we'd be asked to play and we played with everybody and then one day on the railway I got a massive tax rebate <laughs> of a hundred quid massive, huge, like it was a wealthy man. So I gave my mother, I think I gave my mother half, but I think I gave her 50 quid and I kept the other 50. And uh, I went into Dublin with 50 quid. I didn't even know what I wanted to buy. I, was, I had money. As my old man used to say, when boys have money they think they're men and when they've none they're boys again. <laughs> Brilliant. So, so, true. so I went into Dublin and there was a shop closing down and I saw this beautiful cherry red uh 335 shape as in BB King's guitar uh bass guitar and it was stunning looking beautiful and uh I said to him, man how much do you want for the guitar for the bass? He said look the last few things going out he said give me twenty quid gave him twenty quid I got the bass and then when I got it home I realized i had no amplifier didn't know how to play it and a friend of mine Danny Tobin who's played guitar he's still in Bray and he's rocking away he said to me this friend of mine are caretaking a big house down in Cork Abbey and they have amplifiers and all and they jam do you want to come down and try it I said I'd love to so I went down plugged in and I started they started up a blues track I was playing along with the blues track and uh, they were saying no 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 that's not how it goes you know and they took the the bass and he showed me the bass line of what they were doing and uh I got it really quick. And they said, you know, it was really fast. We'll show you another one. So they showed me another bass line. Got it very quick. And they were looking at each other saying, this guy's really fast, you know. Then I got a, uh, they showed me that night, they showed me four tracks. And we, we jammed the four tracks maybe three or four times over. Sure, I, I was delighted. I was actually playing. And you could hear the sound is actually working. You know what I mean? I can yeah. hear, I'm working in with these guys. I already army. had the timing and all that because of the acoustic guitar with the traditional stuff. And... uh the next night I came up, we got another four or five the next night, and so on and so forth. That was when the Monday was the first day I went up, and on the Wednesday I had 15 songs. So said, come on up tomorrow night, and uh, we'll give you the rest of them. So I went up the next night, and then they said, how many songs have you now? And I went through the book, I'd written them on the jotter like yours, and said, there's 20 in there, great. We're playing in the woodlands in greystones on Friday night. I said, Great, I'll come down and have a look at you. And he said, No, you're <laughs> playing the bass. I said, lads, come on, I, I, I've never played the bass. I, you know what I mean? Well, and they said, No, look, we've showed you the lines. You have all the songs. We have the 20 songs for the set. I said, Are you sure? And they said, Listen, we're sure. It's working great. He said, We were talking about it when you were gone. And I said, Listen, you're, you're better than the last guy. And he was playing for years, you know. I said, I'm only playing a week. He said, Listen, you just have it. So. We went down and we played the gig and on the gig that night, the singer, uh, the late Brian Baines actually, who was a great guitar player from Navarro Road, he showed me, he was a great bass player and guitar player himself, he showed me all the, the bass lines for the songs, but um, he, uh, in fact I still carry a lot of Brian Baines. Uh, in my musical toolbox because of the stuff he taught me. He taught me an awful lot of stuff. He shortcutted so much stuff for me that you go around the world, you know the way you go right around the world to end up where you should have been there? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's one it was. He saved me all that stuff. He also gave me stuff to listen to, like the Doobie Brothers, Steely Dan, all these kind of great bands I'd never heard before. And uh, all this funky music, and I started playing the funky music on the bass. But that night, the night of the gig in the Woodlands, uh, With a band called, the band was called Butch, actually, in the the Woodlands. It was called after a Christian brother who used to, the head brother in prayers because he used to let them have the room to rehearse in and that, because they went to presentation college. And uh, I was up, uh, let me just get my head together on this now. Yeah, on stage that night, halfway through the gig, I remember the singer, Eamon Tehan, pointing at his, his neck, the guitar player and I thought his voice was gone so I went over to him and said are you all right?" and there he was saying to Brian Baines is there a knob there he was saying no no well then turn fucking down (laughs) 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 and that was the, the end of the night the band actually broke up which was just one gig but a few weeks maybe it could have been six weeks later they were forming a new band called The Elastic Band And this time we had uh, Brian Baines, Ned Tien from Butch. We had uh, Paul Fairclough on drums, who's uh, just recovered from lung cancer, and a great guy and a great musician. And uh, we had, um, yeah, I think that was it. Oh, no, we got a girl in called Marion Byrne, who was a phlebotomist in St. Michael's Hospital in Dunlap. She used to take your blood. And uh, she was supposed to be so good at it because she they'd never you 'd never feel the needle going in according to all the patients down there, she was the best you know great singer as well, and that band lasted for about a year, and it just it just you know it, it was constant arguments and bickering and all that, so after that band finished, I really didn 't want to know about rock and roll anymore i'd had enough you know it, it just it wasn 't for me. The traditional world was much more natural there wasn 't any egos and stuff like that. it was just people were playing and enjoying the music. But, um, and then after about two years, we uh, before the band actually broke up, before the Elastic Band broke up, we got a, a guy called John O'Brien in to play the guitar. He lasted about three weeks and he left. He said, it's not what I thought it was. Uh, it's not for me. But about, um, I was, hadn't played then. The bass was under my bed for about two and a half years with dust gathering on it. And then after about two and a half, about two years, I think it was, John called down, he said he wanted to, they want to know what i be interested in putting a band together to play the bass and i said john no thanks for asking me but uh i'm i'm just i'm not interested at all you know and uh he kept persisting. Every Sunday he'd call down, and I'd say, "John, you know, I'm really, I, I, this not for me." And he keeps saying to me, "Listen, I love your playing. I've always loved the fire in your in bass player. <laughs> the fire in my bass player, really. <laughs> you know." He said, "Yeah." He said, you, "You've got a you've got a great you've got a great attack on the bass, and you, I love the aggression that you play with." <laughs> aggression? <laughs> he said, "Yeah." And and he said, "There's a chemistry." He said, "I have a chemistry with you." And he said, I, I don't get that very often. I only get it with certain musicians, you know. And the other the, the other guy I have it with is a great keyboard player. He said, I don't get that very often. But he said, I get it with you. But I wasn't interested. And eventually, one day, after being at the Eagles, which was a a kind of um, a folk club up the road where we would great nights, I have to say. Anybody of my ilk would tell you, but Knights at the Eagles, they were legendary. Um, he called by, and I had one large bottle of Guinness too many that morning and I said, I'm going to tell this guy there. <laughs> I've yeah. had enough. He came in, I opened the door quickly and he said, I know what you're going to say but don't say it, just do me one favour for old times sake. I said, what? He said, for old times sake, just give it a blast, that's all I'll ask you, I'll never hound you again. I said, right, okay, I will, when and where. I was actually short with him, you know, and he said, Silver Pine Studios 7 o'clock Thursday perfect right I'll be up and I remember mumbling to myself on the way of this. Fuck that. <laughs> I went in and I, he had Brie Harris beautiful beautiful singer he had Marion Byrne who was with the Boulder Band or with, the, with, the, with, the Elast- with the Elastic Band he had Paul Fairclough on the drums and guitar playing great stuff and uh, myself and himself And we started to jam all these country songs, classic country music, and Hank Williams (coughs) things, all these great. Paul was playing Albatross. While he was playing the drums, he was playing Albatross on the guitar. And we had an amazing evening, about four hours of just jamming these classic songs. So he came over to me at the end of the night when I was packing up and he said, what do you think? I said, John, I wanted to apologise to you first for being short with you, but I said, I didn't know this is what you had in mind. Thanks for for asking me to join. I would love to join the band. I said, this is different to what I thought it was going to be. It's a hell of a lot different to the Elastic Band. And we played that band for two years. We travelled around. We did everything. We did gigs all over the place and it was great. But eventually then it just got there was a bit of a bickering in the band and John said to me one day, I'm actually starting a new band. Are you interested in joining? I said, absolutely, yeah. So, he got together and we got a band called Bagatelle. And only for John O'Brien, there would never have been a Bagatelle. There would never have been a Boulder band. He started the whole thing. There would never have been 41 years only for John O'Brien starting the band. Uh, John was uh, the most well-read man I've ever met. He was an intellectual. I always used to say to him, you're over-designed for rock and roll. You should be a university professor. And long before there was Google, we had, we used to call him the Oracle. Whenever you wanted to find anything out, he was so well-read, you just phone a friend. We used to ring John. John! Yeah, no problem. And well, now there's two of these and all this stuff. I remember one day we were in the car heading somewhere and something came up about Mongolia. There was a question about Mongolia. And we asked John about Mongolia and he said, uh, inner or outer? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> That's how well read the guy was. Wow. He was an amazing guy. He was an incredible musician. Um, one of the songs, he wrote some beautiful songs. You know, Nowhere. Uh, he wrote... Um, one of, the, one of the songs he wrote, uh, Liam collaborated with him on it, but he actually wrote the most of it himself, which was Terry Wogan's favourite Bagatelle song, was Love Is The Reason. Yeah, and he wrote that. Brilliant. And uh, we used to do it in the Boulder Band, but he did, um, Liam added a little section into it, so he cut him in as a co-write on it, you know. But that was Terry's. Terry always used to say, Oh, a great band from Ireland, Bagatelle. Here's my favourite Bagatelle song, Love Is The Reason. He yeah. gave us a lot of great fun. Whenever you get the royalty checks, and you see BBC, he's like, "Ooh!" <laughs> 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 so, um, the, the the bagatelle went off, and they, he had Marion in the bagatelle. In bagatelle for it. we had the female singer who was in the Boulder Band, mm. she, one of the singers. She was with us for a while. Eventually, she left the band. Uh, she married the guy who used to, an American guy called Bob Precious, who used to do the door. ...for us and uh, she eventually married him. She wanted to marry him and they moved over to America. She became a, a, a an heiress over there, I think a millionaire heiress... ...because I think they bought a pub and they developed a chain of pubs. And I think they're gone now, they split up. But I heard she's back gigging around Connecticut. She's yeah. back gigging again, you know. She raised a family in that. Yeah. I met her one time when we were coming back from the States. She was on the same plane um, when we were coming back from one of the tours in America... Um, great singer lovely girl very lovely looking girl as well very uh, Spanish looking you know but um, eventually when she left we had a decision to make what are we going to do at the time she was the lead singer in the band we were just backing her up in that Yeah. and uh, Liam said well I write a few songs oh, do you he said I do and uh, we went up to John O'Brien's house at the time in Sugarloaf Present and on a white upright piano painted white with candlesticks on it out of tune, he played Summer in Dublin. Wow, wow. I heard it and I said, did you write that? And Liam bin Liam, yeah, why, do you not like it? No, sir, I said, I do like it. It's not Baby, I Love You. It's actually very interesting. You know, I know all these places you're singing about, you know. And, um, like, I had no idea that it would turn into what it's turned into. But uh, I heard it and I thought, wow, this is, this is very interesting. And I also said, you've got a great voice, you know. He had a very distinctive voice as well. So we started jamming a few things and we decided, right, here's what we'll do. We'll give it a shot. We'll give it a try. See what happens. So we got a gig booked in a place called the Twilight Zone in Fermoy. And uh, it was the first time we, the four of us were actually going to go down and do a gig. As the first, And we didn't know what to expect. And on the way down, the accelerator cable broke in the van. And me being a MacGyver, probably from the old man teaching me all this stuff and being handy. I had to cut a lump of wire off a fence down there. Apologies to the farmer. <laughs> Attach it onto what was left of the cable and feed it up through a hole in the floor to be the accelerator. So one of the guys was driving and he'd say, Right, let it down, pull it up, and that was the acceleration to change the gears. We got down, we were late. The guy down there, his name was Bernie, and he ate us at the front door and he said, uh, you'll never play for me again and I'm not giving you the full fee because you're late. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we said, look, we're really, I don't want to hear an excuse. If you're not set up in there in 15 minutes and playing, I don't want you can pack up and head off. We said, okay. And one of, th- one of the lads I remember saying, why don't we just pack up and head off anyway? I said, hold on a minute. My hands are manky from getting there. I'm, we've come on this way. Play the gig. We've never heard ourselves play properly in front of an audience. And the other couple of guys as well, not just me. We said, OK, we'll give it a go. So we set up as quick as we could. and I mean, you know, tuned up and stuff on stage. And then it was one, two, three, four. And away we went. And the audience were very hostile at the start. It was slow hand claps and all. Oh, this, After about 20 minutes, they kind of got us. And Jesus, the next thing, they just erupted. And the place went wild. And we were looking at each other saying, thank God for that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Bernie came over and he said, lads, I want to see you in the office. So we went into the office. And he said, I just want to tell you, you won't be playing for me again. Not because I don't want you. You guys are going to be huge. I said, really? He said, I'm sorry about that, but he said, I was getting shit from the audience when, I, when you know when you guys were late. He said, I wasn't expecting to hear what I heard, but he said, look, you guys are go- you're going to be huge. He said, I want to show you a few photographs here. He said, there's my band. I was in a show band. He said, look, at my guitar player. The guitar player was Rory Gallagher. You know, I can't remember the name of the, of the band in Moi. and he said, uh, "Like I, we've played all over the place." Said Rory used to sleep with his guitar. He just was such a music nut. He loved his guitar, and you go in to get Rory up in the morning, and the Strat would be beside him in the bed. You know, but um, and the strangest thing about that whole thing was, that was actually the start of us knowing that we actually could. Do it yeah, as a four-piece. Could be to that We didn't have a clue. We didn't know what we could do. We just knew that we could play, and people would like what we did. You know. But as for Bernie and the Twilight Zone, about six months later, Bernie shut the doors and left the place exactly as it was, just like the Twilight, like a, like a, a, a scene from one of the Twilight Zone things. And himself and the wife just packed it all in, gave it up. And about 10 or 12 years ago, we were playing him for Moy and he came in with his wife and we got him straight away and we just played a request for him. And the poor devil, you know, about, I'd say about six months later, he died, you know. But it, it, that was a tale in itself as well. That was another tale. Yeah. You know, talk about a great, perfect name for the pub, The Twilight Zone. And then he did a Twilight Zone. <laughs> he locked the doors. <laughs> and, and really, from there on in, we were going to Cork for like 40 quid, you know, ourselves and two lads who wanted to be roadies, we give them a couple of quid each. And by the time you get back, you'd have nothing. Like, we were just doing it to promote the band. Right, right, right. And then, one night in Toner's in Bagot Street. What a pub? Yeah, down in the cellar, which they closed after the Stardust fire, because it was only one way in and one way out. Right. If, if a fire happened there, you'd never get out of it. Uh, actually, a couple of things happened there. One night we were playing there in Toner's. And these guys came up and say, we love your music, your music is great. And I said, thanks very much. They said, we are the band from ABBA, we are playing in the RDS. You guys are ABBA? Jeez, you know. No way. And we met uh, uh, Ruger Gunnarsson, the bass player and all. Jesus said, man, I love your bass. I've robbed lines, your bass lines, you know. Lovely guys, like, there's three of them there. And then uh, another night one of the lads came in and said, you're not going to believe it, there's a guy from a record company out there who wants to meet the band after the gig. So after the gig, we went and met him, the late, great John Woods from Polygram Records. And he brought us across to a place called Burgerland across the road. And he bought us a burger, chips and a Coke. And we thought, man, this is the highlight. <laughs> We've made it. And John said he loved what we did. He's been to see us a few times incognito. He just came in and had a listen because he heard the, we, we were very good. And uh, he wanted to do a record. It's great. So the battered transit that we had headed off on the ferry and we went down to a place called Battle in Hastings, where the battle took place, to a live in studio, and we recorded the first album. Which was recorded, mixed, strings went on in Abbey Road Studios, and the whole thing was done and dusted in like four days. The whole thing. Wow. For no money at all. Produced by a fellow called Chris Harding. The guy he produced before us was Bing Crosby. <laughs> A lovely guy, I have to say. Wow, that's funny. It was, it was amazing. And we were over in London and we decided we'd stay over here. And uh, there was a fellow called Lou Rogers, which was the father of... Um, uh, she had a, a, a Eurovision thing. Uh, Claude Rogers' father. He was a Northern, man from Northern Ireland. And uh, he used to book the American air bases in Europe. So he gave us a gig and all the all the different American US Air Force bases all over Europe. We did about seven or eight of them. And uh, you had to do four hours a night. We did everything. We did four country roads one day at a time. Any, because you had to fill four hours is a long time. We did every song you could think of, put another log on the fire. <laughs> we did everything. It's four in the morning, it's more than <laughs> the dawn, and country music, anything at all. If I had to do it for much longer, I would never play played music again. It was like slavery. It was horrible. Right. And um, it was a, an amazing experience because when you go in, You'd have the, the Danish, the Norwegians, the, the Luftwaffe, the German Luftwaffe, the British pilots, the soldiers, all the different armies all over this huge place. And uh, next thing, these guys came up, and they were British soldiers. And they were saying, hey, lads, how's it going? You know, what are you having to drink? And they were having a few drinks with them and that. And they were air-sea rescue and they were saying, we served up in Northern Ireland. I said, remember one day we got knocking on the door and opened the door. There's a guy in a belly club. Was like, oh, shit. And he said, you're all right. We know what you're doing here. We're not going to touch you. Because it was sea Rescue. You know what I mean? He said, Jesus, the shit was written down my leg. Lovely guys. And we had a great bit of crack with them. Uh, And everywhere we went, because they heard you speak in English, they'd come up, because, you know, over there it'd be kind of, you know, mostly all the Mm. different languages, you know, a bit of a problem. But uh, it was very interesting. The most interesting one was a place called Shape, which was Southern Headquarters at Allied Powers Europe, S-H-A-P-E. And it was the size size of Bray. It's bigger than Bray, the whole town of Bray now. And every possible tank, armoured car, you name it. And that was the first time ever that... I experienced what it was like to live in America because uh, they fed us and all. And they say, you know, what are you having? And we say, well, what have you got? Well, do you want a steak? Saying, yeah, yeah, okay. The steak would come out, it'd be bigger than that computer. <laughs> it couldn't eat all this, you know. That would do five people. Like, we were looking to get a burger at the time. But um, it was hard work. There was a few bobbing, it but nothing. You know what I mean? It was just subsistence money. It meant you could actually you know, you could actually eat out and stuff like that. The only thing is we wanted to stay out of Ireland just to create, just to give it a break for a while. But when we came back, we suddenly realised Summer in Dublin was starting to take off. It was getting radio playing. We were saying, God, this is great. I heard Summer in Dublin on the radio and we were down in Minnies in Dungarvan was the gig, the first gig we had when we came back. And we played Summer in Dublin and we got a standing ovation and we looked at each other as if to say, what is this? You know? Because you was weren't
0: around for it. the growth of it.
1: We, we suddenly realised, geez, you know, the people like this stuff. I mean, they really like it because they're standing up. and, they, and they, I mean, it lasted about a minute and a half. It was a quite a long one, you know? Wow. We were shocked. We were saying, wow, it's amazing, you know? And from there on in, John Woods put us in touch with Oliver Barry. Oliver decided to manage us. Because we had what he wanted Have have a record, have you got an, an album? We'd all the stuff. He said, "Right, I'll take you on." And when Oliver took over, everything just went skyward. You know, no more sixty quid down to Corker rent like that. You know, I remember the first gig Oliver did. We went to Kilshimock, and we got a thousand quid for the night, and we were just, <laughs> we were shocked. A thousand, a thousand quid
0: for the band, or for the each? band,
1: for the whole band in nineteen eighty. That was a fortune.
0: Jesus,
1: fortune. Now, he got his cut. I hate to think his cut. But even to get, like, to get 1,000 quid, like, that was ima- Now, by the time we paid the, the PA and the roadies and all, I mean, we probably got about, I don't know, 120 quid out of it each, which is amazing money, you know. I And, like, going to Cork, the whole lot of us for 60 quid, and suddenly you're getting 120 quid yourself, you know. It was amazing. So, really, from there on in, the next thing we, uh, John Wood said, I'm f- setting you up with this producer called uh, Gus Dudgeon, he produced all Elton John's uh, albums. So we went over, we met Gus Dudgeon, and Gus said, yeah, yeah, I like that, right. Your songs are way too long. I'm going to have to chop half them out and all that kind of thing. And we were thinking, because hmm. we'd be so used to playing them. Yeah. But it, we understood after why, what he was talking about. He said, you're not going to get airplay. If your song is more than three and a half minutes, you're not going to get airplay. They won't do it, you know. If it's too long, they'll fade it. You know, they won't put it on. There's, there's not enough airtime, and there's too many songs. Yeah. So we said, okay, we get that. So he produced our second album with all these uh, second violin and all on it, you know, he, and the uh, trump card and all these songs. And that became a huge seller. You know, it was a, a massive seller. Um, unfortunately, 10 years ago or so, Gus was driving home with his wife on the motorway in England and he fell asleep and the car went down the ditch and flipped over into a dike and the two of them were drowned. And oh. he, it was tragic because he produced all this, Yellow Brick Road, Madman Across the Water. He produced all these great Elton John um, and a lot of others besides. He produced loads of stuff, you know. Yeah. But a lovely guy. We used to meet him over there and we'd have a few beers with him and a meal and that, you know. He was a, he was a, he was a lovely guy. So then we had one more album to do to fulfill our deal. And John Wood set us up in another live in studio in Oxford called Chipping Norton, in the village of Chipping Norton called Chipping Norton Studios. Beautiful studio. And uh, the band that were in before us were Dexie's Midnight Runners. <laughs> And they did this. they did a sneaky thing. When they were all down having lunch, they went up and they stole the multi-tape and they drove away with the multi-tape.
0: The fuckers.
1: It was just finished. But now you see what they had is they had the record company by the nuts because they had the finished product. So they went in and negotiated a brilliant deal because they actually had the at the multi, you know? The fucking snakes. <laughs> and we were the next band in and Phil Coulter came over and he produced the third album with us with Raining in Paris and all those great songs and then Johnny set him up and uh, we had a great time. We're still very good friends with Phil, you know. Still, Phil lives in Bray still. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're very good friends with him and uh, Phil's a great musician himself, great songwriter, you know. And we had some, crack. he brought his family down actually because it was Halloween and we <laughs> set off a load of fireworks and all, we be a great old blast with him, you know. And that was, that was the, the album. Then we, we did one more album. Uh, we did, well, we did loads of albums, but the next one we did was uh, an album called Cry Away the Night. And uh, that had, uh, again, loads, loads of great tracks on it, you know. We've done, I think, to date, I think there's about 16 or 17 albums, you know, between, some of them are compilations now, mm-hmm. but there's still, and there's one like uh, The Irish Connection where we did our, all the Irish songs, Bag Bagatella put in one album, and, and Under the Covers where we did a covers album.
0: Fantastic.
1: And uh, they're all still selling. You know, the people bring them to the gigs at night. People bring the vinyl records to the gigs at night and we sign them for them. I say, where did you get that? I don't even have that. In fact, I sent it to a guy a year ago uh, he, in Kilkenny. He brought he brought a vinyl album and said, where did you get that? He said, I've had that since 1980. That's when it was released. I said, "Jesus, it's in absolutely mint condition, you know. Wow. So we signed it for him and uh About eight months later, we were back at Kilkenny and he came up to me with another one. And I said, who will I make this out to? And he said, you make it out to yourself. That's for you. He said, I got that for you. I said, what? He said, I saw it on the internet and I got it for you. I said, that is unbelievable, you know? And uh, he's a a lovely guy. His surname is Megan. his, His Christian name is just... Slipped my mind at the minute. It'll probably come back to me as I'm talking to you, but um, he was a, he was a great. I mean, that's the kind of audience we have. Yeah. They're big-hearted people, you know.
0: You must have had some experience on the road of I mean, any like st- stand-out stories that you could share with us, or anything weird that happened along the, f- the way.
1: So many, ideas, You know, where do you begin? Um, like we've we've toured so much and travelled so much, and I remember being in. Um, we played in a place called uh, it's called Calcadians, as in Wednesdays in New York and uh, we were there for two nights three nights I think it was and on the second night we were coming down there was sirens and cops everywhere and there was, there was an unfortunate guy over lying on the opposite the club on the other path and someone had shot him and he was just there with the he wasn't even covered up because they couldn't touch the scene and he was there and just the blood just draining down the the road and the cops standing around What can you do? Wow. And you know, that really brings home to you what New York was like. I remember 42nd Street when it was really, really rough. I mean, you'd be walking down there and you'd be offered this, that and the other and you didn't want to, you'd be kind of putting on an American accent because you didn't want to know, because if they knew you were from somewhere else, they'd be kind of hounding you, Mm. you know. But, um, and they still come after you. I remember one time I forgot and this guy came up. And he says to me, you want some, you want know, some, Mac, you want some, I didn't know I'm on your Where are you from, man? Uh, <laughs> I'm from Ireland. Ireland? God, I've always wanted to go to Ireland, you know. And then I was standing singing, I hope this guy goes away, you know. But uh, he was harmless enough but I mean some of them were dodgy customers but your man uh, Gi- Giuliani cleared that whole place so he got rid of them all but they all just moved to somewhere else they moved yeah, out you get know get rid of the problems yeah. But 42nd Street was then was, was claimed and taken over um, so many things you know so many great people we've met over the years touring and travelling it's just been a it's been a roller coaster. It's been great. I've always loved rock and roll, so I'm a happy idiot. You know, I love rocking in the free world. <laughs> happy idiot, happy idiot.
0: <laughs> uh, have you do you think the music scene has changed uh, much over the year? Like, well, it obviously, has generational. But has it? Have you seen a significant change? Completely.
1: In, in fact, our publisher Peter Bardon.
0: For the better, or for worse. What's your thoughts on it? For that? the worse. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely,
1: that? because a lot of things that. First of all, our publisher, we met him about a year ago, and he was saying, um, the way you guys started off and how you got your record deal, that doesn't exist anymore. That's gone.
0: Straight off the bat, from what I'm listening to from hearing this interview, yours comes from a genuine, intrinsic love. Love for music. Oh, absolutely. Read out from your mom, your house, your dad, your yeah. little playing the car. Like a lot of things now it's it's money driven, isn't it? It or is fame and glory. I mean
1: I never thought about I never cared about making money. I, I'm more for soul satisfaction than financial satisfaction, you know? Like I wouldn't be uh you know, I I just love playing music. I've always loved play. I mean the, when I'd be on the railway in Killiney and all that, I'd be um I'd be reading New Musical Express and, and all this kind of thing and I'd be thinking, oh, God, I'd love to do that. You know, they'd really love to go touring and see all these places and yeah, all. It about eyes. making money or anything. It was just about the whole lifestyle. And uh, thanks to happy accidents along the way, et cetera, et cetera, and oh, yeah. some people's persistence. Thank you, John O'Brien. Yeah. Here I am, 41 yeah. years later. And
0: I just want to go back because we, 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 the camera wasn't working earlier and you told a beautiful story and it's very significant. I want to go back to it. You told me about playing down on the the railway and kids coming down and you were jamming and you told them to bring a guitar down. Just oh, yeah. just quickly go back over that. Like, I know because we talked about it earlier, but it's really important and I love it.
1: Yeah, when I worked in Killine, um, all the young kids in the area, you know what I mean. They they come down and they say, "Do you mind if we go in and have a smoke?" in there? you know, cause they were smoking. You know, in the days there was no real taboo about smoking cigarettes. You know, it was cigarettes. Now they you know. These are the young lads. And at the time, I said, "Not at all. Go in there. You know what I mean." And they'd be in there hiding around the corner, and uh, they'd be smoking cigarettes. And I said, "Do you ever have you have, have, have a got a guitar anywhere?" Say, "Yeah, my sister has a guitar." I said, "Go on up and get it, and we'll play a few tunes." You know. And we, I still meet them to the present day, and they come up and say to me, "They were the best days of our lives in the station with you down there, hiding in Kilmorey Station, smoking a cigarette." Because they were trying to be, you know, they were like young lads trying to be adults. You know yeah, that kind absolutely. of way. Absolutely,
0: but they're lovely memories of an adult. Well, I
1: have to say, it's great to hear that they have such good memories. They say, we used to love, we say, come on, we we'll go down to Ken. You know, if we're bored, and I would say, come on, we we'll go down to Ken and we'll bring the guitar down. And I'd be learning songs, I'd be telling them, and I'd, you know, Eagle songs and stuff like that. And they'd be saying, God, that's great. You know, someone'd say, show me how you do that. And I'd be showing them chords and stuff like that. And it just was an, an amazing time. I remember actually the station master, <laughs> I don't know how this happened. I was walking off the train from Killiney home for lunch. And he was coming up the platform. And I said hello. He was a lovely man now, Sam Benville, a gentleman he was. Big, tall man, really tall. very, And actually very General de Gaulle looking. He had that kind of... Well, he was obviously French with the name like Benville, you know. And as I was going by him, he said to me, how are the ballot sessions going? And I went, <laughs> how did he know? Yeah. You know what I mean? He was talking about the things down the, the station. Yeah. But uh, I'd lock up the station sometimes at night because... Um, I couldn't get the last train down because when the last train left, I'd have to lock the station up, right. and I'd have to go all the way up to Ballybrack and get the bus back. It's just one of these stupid things, you know. Instead yeah. of saying, "Lock the station up and get the last train down," yeah. or the last train this way, no, the last train would do. The other one was five minutes later this way. I yeah, had yeah. to wait till it locked the station. But I used to lock the station. But I think sometimes when the young lads were there, I'd probably forget to put the lights off, so other people see the lights on. They'd say no your man's still there and they may have seen the young lads going out you know after because I'd head up there we'd stay for about an hour I mean they'd be there for about two and a half hours but an hour after the, the last train we'd probably hang out for another hour and then I'd go up and get the bus from Ballybrack so the lights would be on all that time and maybe someone ratted me out man <laughs> and when I get you i <laughs> <laughs> and really uh as I have to say, it was great. time. we did the party loft there recently, and I had a couple of them come up and say, "Ken Doyle, they were the best days of our lives." Uh, I swear to you, you know. Memories, yeah, but they were great, you know, and they were innocent days, you know. It yeah. wasn't like. There's no innocence really anymore. It's, it's a different world and it was a yeah. huge amount of violence and shit like that. There was none of that back then. They were, and they were lovely guys, you know. They were great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great young lads. And they were the all sense. like from, you know, like a, from very good backgrounds and all. Well, I'm not going to mention that today, but they were all, you know, like you'd, you'd know their, their parents were from, were from like name companies and all that yeah. you know but they were lovely guys lovely lovely young lads you know
0: what words of wisdom would you have for anyone that's in music now or getting into or going to follow a you know a passion what what would you, what would you say well the it? only thing i would
1: say is definitely follow your passion and if you're fortunate enough as i have been to have music in your life you're an extremely lucky person whether you never made a penny out of it or not you know and if you want to play i mean i would happily play music for recreation yeah you know what i mean not so much on my own now, but if there's a few people who wanted a song or two, I would happily do it just for the crack. You know what I mean? The other thing about it is what killed music as well is technology because now you can download when someone makes an album for, I don't know, 50, 60 grand and the record company put that money in and then people download one track for 99 cents. They can't make the money back. So what do they do? They don't give you, they don't pay for albums anymore. They don't give you advances anymore. Like, well, we remember one time we got an advance of five grand, which is going to come off your royalties. Mm -hmm. They won't give you that anymore because they they could do an album. They won't even record an album with you unless you're extremely lucky and you're Simon Cowell's prodigy or something like that. They're not going to do it. That's why the music business, and you know, when we play at night, the amount of people, young people who come up to ask, can they play before us, they don't want any money. They just want exposure because there's nowhere for them to play. But I have to tell you, the standard of music out there is astonishingly brilliant. Is it? Yeah. Unbelievable! I'm telling you, I've never witnessed anything as good. Uh, I I watch them and I listen to them every night to see how good they are. Incredible singers, brilliant musicians, great songs, original songs by these. And,
0: and you really have to, or you really have to up your game if if the if the catch is quite small and now you're not going to be seen. You really have to upskill. The problem really
1: is. No, there's no way of up on your game because there's nowhere for them to play there is nowhere for them to play you know I mean really you very rarely see a band in a pub anymore you might see one guy with a backing track or two guys you won't because they can't afford to pay them number one mm. and number two bands are expensive you know I don't know like I mean unless you're extremely lucky and you're extremely talented you know what I mean it's, in fact I don't even know if that's enough I really don't that's how bad the, the music business is totally on its knees, and they they're not investing you know you have they don't ready do. for
0: happy accidents.
1: I tell you what I've always said, and I still stick by it. I feel very honored to be born in the era I was born in. I was born in the fifties. I experienced when rock and roll happened, and I experienced all that and I was down here, and all these teddy boys would be around. I have these things they used to call <laughs> brothel creepers, you know. <laughs>
0: Brottle
1: creepers. <laughs> Before that, you see, everyone had these leather shoes. Yeah. You could hear them creeping around the brothels. <laughs> but then, you know these shawadi wadi yeah. shoes, the big crepe sole things, right? I, I actually got, I have a pair. I have them for the last 10 years. I love them. I wear them on stage. Brottle. And you yeah. see, you could sneak around the brothel and no one would <laughs> I remember when I was a young lad, my father saying to me, we were walking up the maid Road, which is behind me here, and my father saying to me, Come on across the road here. And I say, why? He said, just come over here. Why are we crossing the road? And I said, why are we crossing? I said, there's teddy boys coming down. And actually, there was five or six guys came down, and they had the Edwardian coats, the duck's arse haircut, um, the drain pipe trousers, and the brothel creeper shoes. And I was there (laughs) in my little brown box pocket corduroy suit with short trousers because no one had long trousers long yeah. trousers were right of passage then you didn't get out of you about 12 or 13 you only got into long trousers and I was looking at these going by and I was thinking they're teddy boys and I was saying mm. at the time I was saying I like that I love the shoes you know so yeah. I eventually got a pair about 10 years ago online and I think they're great
0: Brawl the I'm going to get myself a pair of bro, well when
1: some I'm, some. next time I'm creeping around the process they won't <laughs> I we're anyone go the or the creepers, they look good. <laughs> I remember actually, uh, you know, we were when we were in the Bagot Inn years ago. It's just sometimes people ask you where did the songs come from, and uh, one time we were playing in the Bagot Inn. And uh, we had a battered, now I mean a battered transit. There was no NCT or nothing that. You just yeah. got a yoga. if it had three wheels and it moved, you could get away with it, you know. Mm,
0: yeah, back in the
1: day. And we were loading up the van. Uh, getting the gear in was okay. You see, when you had a couple of beer, a couple of beers and you did a gig, loading the van out. Jeez, I, I hated that. It was dreadful. We were loading out one night. It was Trinity Rang Week and there was what Luggs Brannigan used to call street hostesses, the ladies of the night.
0: Street hostesses. Street
1: hostesses. That's what he used to call them. He used to look after them. He'd it. make sure that no one bet them up or he'd go over and he'd beat them up. And Lugs was a boxer, you know. He was yeah. tw- I, I've seen him operate down here. Bray was a tough town back in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. And they used to go around in a van, the boxing team. And if there was a fight, he'd give you two chances. Go home, son, go home, son. And just deck them. And then they drag them and just leave them up against the thing to, to wake up, you know? I mean, you, you'd be jailed for it now, but that's the way Lug's operated. And, uh, well, with the street hostesses, he used to look after them, and if anyone was messing or haggling with them, he'd go over and he'd put them straight. And um, when we were loading the van anyway, and Trinity Rag Week, and there was 10 students, and they were hanging around these two street hostesses. And they were saying, come on, come on, how much you give us a good ride for the 10 of us. Come on, come on. You know, and And one of them said, go away with that, you students, we know you, all balls and no money. And that's where the idea for *Leeson Street Lady came from. Was it?
0: Yeah. All
1: balls no money. All balls and no money. Actually, some of those lads are probably solicitors, politicians, garristers, architects, you know. You wouldn't know. They were students back in the day. Young young apprentice drinkers, you know what I mean? A couple of beers and, and out of the head. But that's just one idea. It's just, it's just a bit of crack, you know, for, for where that came from. And really, the rest has been a, a series of, of uh, it's just been an amazing, an amazing blast. It's a total and absolute happy, a series of happy accidents. We never, part of the reason probably we're together still is we never had a plan. Because when plans go awry, that's when people start getting pissed off and say, you know, we were going to do this, we were going to do that. We never had a plan. The audience gave us the plan. That's why I say, 41 years, thank you for all
0: like me meeting you was a happy accident i was put on to frank uh by a friend of a friend me and got frank frank's interview was fantastic what a lovely guy me and frank became friends a few things has happened i'll tell you after the the microns are off what happened that all good (laughs) mad (laughs) stuff happened he rang me one day so you wouldn't believe what happened to me hopefully i'll get him on the podcast to talk about it again and then i bumped into him in the gym a couple of weeks and he says, "Me." I know a fella that you should interview. Ken Doyle and he's in Bagatelle. Oh, he I said, you're fucking joking. Man. <laughs> I love that band. And then, and then oh, I'm here now with you sitting when in I, your front yeah, We were on, on d- Bray and I used to work in Bray.
1: Yeah, it's Gaz. About six weeks ago he was out with his wife, you know. Uh, so then you in, know the story. Deera, and uh, he was talking to me on the back roof and uh we had a great bit of a chat, you know what I mean? And then he, he, he rang me, or he sent me a text about, the, about yourself. Yeah. I said, sure, no problem at all, He's you know. He's
0: an absolute legend. He tells me that you went to uh, Route 66 on a bike.
1: I did. Um,
0: oh, you done Route 66. My Sorry. son,
1: Oliver, who's now 25, yeah. only a few days ago. My son, Oliver, um, was born premature, two months premature. And he fought his way, he was tiny little guy, he'd fit, he fit him a. Excuse me, he's fit on my hand, but um, he was very. He won the lucky ones because <laughs> they kept stringing me along and saying. I'd say, "What's his chances?" I'd say, "Well, he's pink. That's a good sign, you know. That's all they tell you. He's still here. You go in the next day. He's pink and he's still here. That's good. They wouldn't. They couldn't say. They couldn't give you what odds, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But um, after they did all that, then his eyes were all over the place. One eye was up here and the other eye was down here somewhere. And when you'd be given out to him, his eyes would be rolling around. I would have to I'd have to go down to the kitchen saying and just laugh because it just it, it look, you know. And I'd be saying, You can't do that, Oliver. And I so said, I'll be back in a minute, I'd go out <laughs> and I come back and say, You're not gonna do that again? No, all right, go on, you know. Folks, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were over on holidays one time in Portugal and he came over to me and he said to me, Kent, that lad over there is after calling me cock-eyes. I said, Don't mind him. What is cock eyes? I said, Don't mind him. So we went into Temple Street but he wanted to get his eyes straightened out. So we went into Temple Street and uh, Temple Street measured him up and all that and said, right, we're going we're gonna to do the job. So he went in and they did an amazing job on him. They straightened his eyes out and changed his life really completely, you know. And another happy accident. I ride motorbikes, you know. And I was on the old Harley Ironhead Sportster I have, and I was up at Tesco. And I met a friend of mine who's, son was in school with my oldest my oldest son Wayne and he said to me Do you Ken I never knew you were on the bike he's a paramedic Paddy you know Paddy Burke and I said um, oh, I've on my bikes all my life you know he's
0: not a Scottish guy is he
1: no no he's a, he's, um, a he's guy a,
0: used to work in a Martello he's a paramedic and he's on bikes
1: no he's a, he's a guy with kind of gingery hair and you know uh, lovely guy Paddy but he said to me "The a friend of mine looking for people to go down Route 66 for Temple Street Children's Hospital and I said, well, Paddy, let me tell you this. I wanted to do Route 66 since I was about 14 on a motorbike. And I said, the other thing about it is, Temple Street, after all they've done for Oliver, I, whatever, just tell me how you want to jump, I'll do it. You know what I mean? He said, right, give us your number and I'll get him to ring you. And two days later, I got a call. And this guy saying to me, how are you doing? My name is Tony Toner. I'm uh, the road captain for Route 66. I said, all oh, right, yeah. how are you, Tony? And he said, I have a couple of questions for you. Um, have you a full motorbike license? I said, I do. How long have you got it? Oh, I said, Jesus, forever, you know. He said, uh, have you got a criminal record? I said, no. <laughs> i just lucky I haven't been caught yet, you know. <laughs> he said, right, how healthy are you? I said, I'm very healthy, actually, you know. I said, I pound the hill every day with the dog and all. I'm I'm actually good, you know. He said, right, okay. This it seems to be all in order. He said, I'll tell you what, next Sunday, be down in Leash at the fire station car park at 12 o'clock. I went down to Leash and they said, right, you had the cones there and they said, right, go on, do the cones up that way, over that way and back this way. So I did the cones, you know. I said, there's nothing wrong with your riding as well. You know, he said, you're fine, you know. And, uh, We're actually the best of friends and have been for years. After that, we just we just hit it off. Like uh, I've been to his birthday parties and everything. He's he's like family member now, and whenever we're playing in Dublin, he comes out. But he's the guy in charge of the whole thing. And excuse me. Brilliant. Uh, And um, he um, he got us all ready. They gave us uh, every week. We go out for a session, and um he put us through the paces. he tell us all the little do's and don'ts and all this kind of thing. He told us how to ride in convoy, you know, mm. and all this kind of stuff. Um, all the stuff and little tricks, though, I didn't know I'm riding motorbikes all my life, about 60% on the back brake and 40% on the front brake and all the 60, 40, all this stuff, which wow. has saved my life on several occasions afterwards. But um, and eventually we had to raise eight grand to do the run. We had no trouble. I mean, I raised 10 grand like that, you know. The band did a couple of gigs for me. It was just an amazing time. That was before the crash. It was 2006. And I went down and did Temple Street. I did the Route 66 for Temple Street. And between us all, we raised 1 million euro. It was great. It was great. It was great. And as I say, I've made friends there that I'll have for the rest of my life. You know, they were just amazing people, you know. And every one of them. Shout out
0: to Temple Street and Children's Hospitals. Yeah,
1: and they brought us around for a tour and they showed us some of the unfortunate kids in there. There was one kid in there, actually. He was actually beside Oliver when he was getting his eye operations done and his hands were like that. And what they did was they cut down here and they gave him fingers. It was amazing, you know.
0: They turned his hands into fingers? Yeah, he had
1: no fingers here. So they cut down here and stitched them up and he had fingers. And he could move them? He could move fingers, yeah. That's I mean, that's how incredible they are. Wow. And the most patient people, I tell you what, they are just, they're, they're gods in my book, you know. So it was a real honour to be able to do that for them. It was great. Wow. So we went from Chicago down to Santa Monica and uh, the whole trip took two weeks. And I have to say, I got one, of, my got one of the things I wanted to do. I was very lucky to get one on my bucket list. It was amazing
0: doing that
1: trip oh it was great I mean they gave me a beautiful uh, road uh, not a road king um, heritage soft tail Harley Davidson and I put my bag on the back of it I taped it down and I had an armchair and I just put my feet up on the engine bars it was like just yeah it was class rock and roll it baby was rock, rock and roll. roll I had an amazing trip it was it was incredible but again to, to be able to do that and to be crossing state lines and the Mississippi River and the Missouri and amazing absolutely amazing met great people along the way you know Got to see the Grand Canyon with all these nuts as well. You know, it was it was great, great, great out.
0: Fantastic! Shout out to Temple Street Hospital. Frank tells me uh, there's a significance about this house. The fifties and sixties was it in
1: a film. It was in a film called The Running Man with Lawrence Harvey and uh, Running, Man, Running Man. I think
0: it was. What's that? Oh no, there was, was no, there's there. other
1: movies, but Schwarzenegger was in a yeah, Running yeah. Man as well. But this is an old movie uh, called The Running Man and uh, Lawrence Harvey he fakes his own debt for an insurance claim and he crashes the plane and you see him walking up the driveway here and he's saying to the man, what happened? He said, there's been a plane crash and he walks up and knocks on the door to book into it like it's supposed to be a cheap hotel, you know? Mm. And that's the bit that was the house was in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's fantastic. And this house is haunted. Uh, I I was talking to a man and he's telling me that... uh, the camera crew ran out of the house because of all the noise and the clanking and the banging. Now we've heard and seen a few things, but there's no smoke or music, so they're not frightening. They're just weird things that happen, you know.
0: Like what, what has happened? Like it, it,
1: glass is exploding for no reason. R- here like, the, in glass? the kitchen, yeah, bottle. I got a lovely bottle of cider vinegar one time, and I put it on the counter, and about twenty minutes later, it just—it's like someone shot a bullet through the window, and it just burst into. What are you scraping chairs on the floor. What do you attribute that to? Uh, I don't know what it is. It could be. Does that freak you out? It doesn't freak me Because there's no kind of. Mm, oh, there's the, no the smoke. It's just things it. like another night uh, seeing someone going by the door.
0: <laughs> oh, stuff off camera. How about
1: that there's nobody there? A, a chair being dragged across in that room. Did you, you know? see it or just hear it? Oh, I saw, I saw somebody's head going by. Like a woman with a, a page bike. Style going, coming, going across. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> Get me out of here. Uh, Lots of things. I mean, my wife has seen different things. There was a, a a girl sniggering there one night and she just saw her looking around the corner and she went around. Uh, one night there was a. This is the first flat I ever had, is this actual room. And my brother had the flat next door. Jerry. Oh,
0: this was all flats? You this was all flats.
1: Area. I bought, that's what I say, when I bought this place, I didn't realise the catastrophe I'd bought till I got into it and I went, oh, but the Lord Jesus, no. <laughs> There was rapping on the door like someone had a stick. I jumped out of bed. And I opened up the door and there was nobody there. And Jerry was standing out there. And I said, what the fuck was that? He said, I don't know. Jesus. I mean, it was really loud. Different things like that. Um, uh, noises. A friend of mine, I got him to, he wanted to watch something. So I wasn't here. So I gave him the key. He said, you know, you can watch it. It's on TV. <laughs> fuck that. And he's deaf now. He's pretty much deaf. Adrian Duggan He's fairly deaf. He knows only like, got little hearing that And he told me the next day. He said I had to run out of the place with the noise. I said, yeah, "Really?" Oh, he said it was unbelievable. So you've just got used to it. Well, I don't know. I I, I I don't know. Like I remember another friend of mine, and he, we were having a few drinks here. And I said John O'Brien actually. He's started a Bagatelle, and he went down to the bathroom, and he came back up to me and he said to me, "Your house is haunted." I said, I know. And he said, Did you? I'm after seeing someone in the kitchen.
0: <laughs>
1: I said, is it, is it Gerard? No, he said, it's not. He said, he's dressed in an old uh, pinstripe, double-breasted suit, he said. And he didn't last long. He said, this house is haunted. <laughs> I said, well, I know that, but I've never really seen that, you know. I've just heard noises. I've seen things. And stuff disappears from time to time as well. You can never find it, you know. We often we used to put a glass of wine at a Christmas for the ghosts and say, "Well, yeah, come out and folk and join us for a drink," you know.
0: That you don't even bat an eyelid on that. I would be shit. It's it's it,
1: it isn't. I tell you, there's a there's one weird thing. That room downstairs with the lads use, right? Yeah. Um. There was an old someone had taken the fireplace out, of, but there was an old, you know, these modern red brick things mm. that looked dreadful. There was one of them, and so I said, "That is gone straight away." And I was up the north. There's friends of mine up there, and they have a, a big antiques place in Moy Lawrence and uh, and Margaret Toomey, and they're beautiful antiques up there and I was up there and I saw this beautiful fireplace and the tiles were all gone all the tiles on the sides were gone out of it and it was full of paint and I said Lawrence come on do me a deal on that now oh god that's a fine one he said there's lovely heads and all on that that's a good one I said come on he said I'm lucky he said give me £100 you can have it I said okay I'll do, I'll do it you know Bought it for 100 quid. Um, They had... They had... um, Anne actually at the time uh, got a medium. Someone said there's a medium friend of mine and she's going to come in and have a look around the house. And she came in and she froze in different places. Ooh, I'm freezing here. There's something here, you know, and all this kind of thing. And there's all sorts of stuff like that. (laughs) This woman's mad, you know. (laughs) And she came up with a scenario that... uh, the mother used to take a nap in the afternoon and the daughter let the boyfriend in and something happened and she found out or something and she knocked over the candle and the house went on fire and the mother died from her injuries and the burns and all this. And, and Now, I don't know whether that... I don't know. Like, you know, I i have no idea. But that was her. But what did strike me about the psychic was I had a fireplace outside and she said to me, I said, lovely fireplace, are you putting that in or taking it out? I said, I'm actually putting it in. And she said to me, have you any tiles for it? I said, no, I'm actually going to be looking for tiles. She said, I was set in the boot of the car. I said, have you? I went down, and there's these beautiful hand-painted Victorian tiles in the car. The exact tiles for the fireplace, I bought them off her for 50 quid. And I'll tell you what, they're just, that to me now was a more of a psychic moment than what she went through, you know what I mean? That's to me, a happy, that was psychic. You happy know? accident, eh? Yeah, another happy accident. Ex- my life has been a tapestry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's fantastic. I'm not nervous. Like, probably if the lights were off and it was dark and my, my imagination started getting the better of me or something. Like, there's nothing spooky about the house, it's not freaky. It's actually lovely. Well, Just i re- to give a backdrop for people. We're in Bray, we're on the seafront, elsewhere Ken lives. It's a beautiful kind of what they say. Victorian time. It is Victorian,
1: yeah. Beautiful. This house was built.
0: House, it's amazing. It's beautiful curtains.
1: This house was built in the worst year of the famine, eighteen forty-seven. So that will show you someone had money back in the day. Mm. But um, no, I. I, You know, to me they're not they're not scary things. But then some people see other things that maybe that others wouldn't see. Like, I do remember one night I was there in bed and. I, fell, I was reading a book and I fell asleep. And I, next thing, the door opened. I didn't know I'd fallen asleep, but the door opened slowly. And this, <laughs> this girl of about 10 comes in with kind of blonde hair and an old-style nightdress. You know the ones with the kind of puff sleeves on them mm. down to here? Jesus and she was soaking great. wet. It was wringing wet. And I could hear her feet suction on the floor as she was walking towards the bed. And I remember trying to push myself out to the back wall. Now, the walls are about three foot thick here, you know. And I woke up with a start. I just was like, Jesus. And she had that kind of funny kind of quizzical, she had a a funny kind of quizzical smile on her face. Um, You know, like, I don't know whether it was good, bad, or menacing and all, but I woke up and I thought, that was so realistic. You know, it was weird. But about five years later, I was over in London at Halloween. We were playing over there and I called out to my sister's house and my niece. And um, they had all this Halloween stuff out there. And on the plate was exactly the same face of the girl that had walked into the room. And then someone told me that they had a... Uh, someone told me that... That girl, that there was actually a child in this house years ago, according to local that went over there and drowned in the sea. She got up in the morning and went across the road. Probably I mean, like that unfortunate girl in, in uh, Kuala Lumpur, you know? Yeah. Went across the road and... and uh... Sorry? Yeah,
0: <laughs> And um, That's how you pass the key out to people. <laughs> I love it.
1: Uh, and, um... now, I don't know whether it's true. Um, I, I met the um, man I... The neighbour of ours a grew up, he said, I hadn't seen him for years. I met him, he's, he's, he's unfortunately deceased as well. And I remember seeing him in and uh, in Chorus Court <laughs> And he said to me, where are you living these days? I said, I'm living down in the house on the Strand uh, near Jim Doyle's. Oh, he said, the haunted house. I said, well, I, yeah, it is a bit. He said, do you ever see the ghost? I said, I've seen a few things and I hear a few things, all right, you know. He said, I'll tell you what, the next time you see the ghost, you say, in the name of God and his blessed mother, can I do anything for you? And I said, Eddie, if the ghost saw us, he'd say, in the name of God and his blessed mother, can I do anything for you? (laughs) (laughs) Do you a favor. And and that's it. But um, reputation has it. This house has been haunted for uh, God only knows, you know, Uh, for forever, you know.
0: You are rock and roll. Like you're bulletproof.
1: Like, but you know, what? It, it's not, like, I mean, it's not, like, scary stuff. See, there's no music. There's no smoke. There's no, uh, you know, with these big, like, drones of cellos and that. There's nothing. It's, it's just, like, things happen. There's noises. There's scrapes. You know, there's uh, bangs. You know, things like that. But there's nothing, you know. We've you. often said, reveal yourself. <laughs> come out. Come out. Are. And we often say, give us the lotto numbers. Go on. You know. <laughs> <laughs> What's your
0: your, uh, your cabin connection
1: my cabin connection is my mother and and um, uh, um, France's mother were sisters uh, his mother was Angela my mother was Rosaline yeah. and they were from a place down in cabin called Mount Palace it's just beside Mount Nugent which is another interesting place it's actually originally the monks came down there from Italy is um, the Augustine, not the Augustinians, the Cistercians, I think, and they came from Italy and they came from a place called Monte Pelleciano. And when they moved down there, it was called Monte Peliciano, but it turned into local use as Mount Palace, you know, and that's where they're from. And they're um, my nephew, my cousin down there, his son and his son and daughter. And, and my other cousins, they're all extremely musical people as well. Amazing music in the family. These are the young lads. I think Daryl's gone about 15 now or something like that, but he is a stunning musician on banjo, guitar, bass, anything. He's great. His sister's great on keyboards, whistle, fiddle. The young lad, who was a notorious young lad, I always used to say, that man will go to the moon because you couldn't, they had to lock the drawers and all, He couldn't keep, and he was a wild man. He's now the singer and I'll tell you what, look out Freddie Mercury, there's someone taking your place. He is an amazing young lad, and he's only about eight. Really? And he has all the actions and the voice and everything, you know, he's brilliant. So I'm just saying like it's it's there, it's definitely in both sides of the family. Because my other side, the Doyle side as well, they're all amazing musicians, all my cousins and all, brilliant musicians, you know.
0: Did you and Frank used to hang out as kids or was there any shenanigans
1: with me? No, we used to call down there at the odd time and just you know, like we just call in but that would only be for a few hours, you know what I mean? We never actually I we called to see the cousins in, in Baileyborough. But you know. Yeah. But we never uh, I hang out more with my cousins down in Man, Nugent, and The Rock, and all that is a real rapparee kind of place where they were. The Rock, you know, like, yeah. when you hear The Rock, it's almost like you think a highwayman up there, you know. Well, some of them are, <laughs> <laughs> <Mountain men. laughs> but they're great characters and they're very generous people. I have to say, they would do anything for you, you know, they really are great, yeah,
0: brilliant. Roy, right, I'm very mindful of your time. Uh, what's the one thing you would like people to take away? From listening to this interview, or your life, or what could you share with
1: them? Um, I, I've had ups and downs, you know, like everybody else. You know what I mean? I've had poverty days, like when we were growing up, Ireland was a poverty-stricken country. We'd nothing, but it gave me a great desire to. If we ha- we had nothing here, like I mean, no, I wasn't just just not just us. All our neighbors and all, we were kind of united in having very little, but there was a great sense of community, and we always used to help each other out. we go in for the sugar and the butter and the milk. You know the usual way with the cups and all that Mm. sort of stuff. But we had a great sense of community and uh, I and my brothers and all the people that I knew and grew up have the same sense of community. They've carried that with them. And sometimes when you do things for people and they ask you, why did you do that? They kind of get suspicious and you think, (laughs) the way we were brought up. That's what we did. Everybody helped everybody. You know? And I kind of think, is that it? And but you know, what's in it for you? There's a friend of mine in a nursing home. He passed away there, and he he used to say to me, you know, would you would you bring me up to the house? <laughs> you know, he was he he, was, he had a bad crash and he went underneath. He had no seatbelt down because his back was at him. He went underneath where the steering wheel was and really screwed the skeleton up totally, you know. And I used to bring him up, and he'd just sit around the house and he and he'd sit out in the garden and he just kind of you know reminiscing because he kind of knew like things were writing was on the wall and the woman up in the nursing home said to me you know that he's a you know that his house is 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 gone or something like that and and, you know this thing where they do you take your house
0: oh yeah yeah and it uh, pays for your uh, yeah pays for your nursing home They take a percent they sell it and then they just put it into your your care yeah exactly and i I said
1: uh no I didn't actually I said uh, but what, what's that got to do with anything well she just said like you know if you're if you're thinking like that uh,
0: oh I see where you're going with
1: I these. said hold on a minute this man's a friend of mine this man I feel you sorry for agenda. this man. I said you know and she said well no, we just wanted to let you know and Kay I said listen I'm not doing this I'm not looking for anything I'm not even looking for diesel money off him he's a friend of mine I feel so sorry for him he is one of he's like me he loves music he loves that and he wants to go up and sit down in his house I don't mind donating an hour and an hour and a half or two hours and then she got real embarrassed I said no I, I, I hope you don't take me up wrong I said oh look I don't take you up wrong you know because I said I kind of say to myself "She, sure, look that's probably what other people will be doing if they come yeah, it's in it's probably you know? the norm. yeah um, and and um, but anyway, she said to me, like, every time I go and she said to me, I really, I feel so bad about what I said. I said, don't forget about it. I said, that, a lot of people who would come in there probably are looking for that. I yeah. said, to me, he's a friend of mine. I'm just, you know, like, like I did a, I videoed a burial at sea with him and all. He's, he's a friend of mine. He was a retired ships captain, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but that's the way people obviously think. And maybe she sees it on a day ba- day-to-day basis. I have no idea. You know what I mean? Well I didn't get what she was talking about. But then the penny dropped and I went, <laughs> hold on a minute, you know. Mm. That's not like that, you know. But the poor guy, um, I brought him up a few times and I'd have to the window open because he couldn't breathe and he needed to breeze and all mm. I just, I said to myself, you know, like, I mean, we're all only one step away from the pit, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. It's anyway. But that's the way, but the only advice I could give, I, I can't really give advice. I'm just saying, um, as I say, the happy accidents. I just hope that... Um, people have the same kind of happy access. I meet the same kind of incredible people that I've met who've uh, nurtured me and and, and put me in the right direction. I've been a good listener and, you know, um, I've always felt I surrounded myself with people who are far better than me. So, you know what I mean? I I learn from them and, and, um, you know what I mean? Like, I just, like you always know when when someone knows more than you and when they're better than you and you listen to them and and take in what they say and learn from their knowledge. And John O'Brien, who started the band, was like a second father to me. And at his funeral, his daughter came up and gave me a hug and said to me, Ken, I've never told you this before, but she's an only child. I've always regarded you as my big brother. And I said, well, you know what? What an honor, Susan, because I've always regarded your father as my second father because he was a great guy and he was a father to me and I learned so much from that man I carry so much of him in my life you know what I mean yeah because he was it was like going to gigs with, a, with an open university professor it was amazing wow he knew everything he was great great man
0: what I take from this Ken from talking to you over the last hour or an hour and a half because we had to refilm again And fair play to you you are That's professional no we, we, we made a town hall with the camera for the first 20 minutes and then Ken was like let's do it again let's do it again because I was getting nervous, like, oh, shit, what I'm do we not, do, what do we do? And I really appreciate that. that. What really stands out to me here now is your love for your for what you do. It just comes out You're You're your, your generally decent skin, but the love for your profession. And if anyone can take that, and it's only poignant for me at the moment, because I was talking about leaving cert and what should people do and what did I do, if you follow your heart, follow what you love doing, and it's not about money or internal uh, external no. uh, rewards, you'll go a lot of the way. Now, you won't always pay the bills, but you know what? You'll be happy, and you seem to be eternally happy.
1: I am actually, you know, I am I am a quite happy, and I'm I'm that's a bit of a happy idiot, maybe. And I love life, and I I, I hate the thoughts of actually living because I actually love life. I love. Simple things in life.
0: What was that term you said to me earlier? Simplicity, simplicity is, is the, the highest
1: form of sophistication. I you know? love it.
0: I love simplicity. Everything should be brought down to a simple. Or as the
1: Americans say, kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. You take any invention, any good pop song, the simple ones always work. Inventions. The simple invention always works. You know? You can have all this stuff out there. If you can just squeeze that down and say right (laughs) it's the bottom that's what advertising agencies do they you go in and say now on this and want this right you said okay forget about all that like record producers forget about all that chop that off chop that up you don't need it there's what you need you know and that's what they do and really um your simplicity is the the one really you know like
0: um it's the highest
1: form of sophistication and it really is like, uh, as I say, ask any advertiser and they'll tell you the same thing. A friend of mine works in advertising, you know. And he said, uh, we cater for what we call in advertising circles the herd. I said, the herd? He said, that's what we call the people we're advertising to. Because her- it is herd mentality. I said, oh, I never knew that. People farming
0: and... yeah, yeah no.
1: Yeah. It, the general public are, are a herd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And,
0: yeah. They, and that's what they do the
1: do. They do what we tell farming. them. We do what we tell ta- He said, it doesn't work for you because you're a fucking mad bastard. But he, <laughs> said, <laughs> but he said, the herd is who we cater for. And when we tell them you can't drive on the right hand side, they say, OK, you can't drive on the right because they've been told. Um, a perfect example of that, which I benefited from down here, they put in these beautiful flagstones in the car park down at the harbour. You know the one with all these yeah, squares? Yeah, yeah. And they didn't put any markers in. And there were cars parked everywhere. So the guy got a dumper truck and they took all the ones up and they put red ones in to show them where to park. And then everybody parked in the right place. And he was coming by and he said to me, are they any good to you? I said, you're damn right they are. And I have them in my back garden. <laughs> <laughs>
0: happy accident. So another happy accident. Another happy accident.
1: Aww. But my life has been a series of happy accidents, you know like I'm um, I'm a student pilot at the moment uh, and another thing I, when the kids were young I had a camper van and we used to go off in the camper van it was great and then when they get to a certain age they don't want to know you the usual yeah. you know. so the camper van was out there doing nothing and this friend of mine was looking for a camper van and I was trying to sell it to him and he said I tell you what I haven't got money but he said I can swap you I'll give you a beautiful micro light aircraft for it now that's the other thing by the way I've always wanted to fly but I could never do it because it's too expensive hobby Yes. Yeah. a microlight aircraft? What is it? He said, it's a Pegasus Quasar. He said, it's the, the Rolls Royce of microlights, two-seater. I said, I'll come down and have a look at it. He said, bring the camper van. I brought the camper van down. And he had a look at the camper van. And he said, perfect. And he showed me the Pegasus and he started it up. And I said, oh, man. I said, I love this. He said, I'll do you a straight swap. Now, he said, I can get six grand for that in the morning. I only want a five for the camper van. Yeah. I said, deal. Then I got the yoke and I realized well I realized anyway when I before I bought it like there's no laybys up there you have to learn. So I the only one doing lessons over here on weight shift is a fellow in Arts called Jerry Snudden. Jerry is a brilliant brilliant uh, uh, you know uh, trainer uh, yeah. you know instructor instructor sorry that's the word I'm looking He's a great instructor. The problem up there is you have the Atlantic the North Sea and the Irish Channel convergent. There's always wind. It's very, you can't fly those things if it's windy. So I looked up online and I saw this thing, fly 365, you fly all year. And I said, "Well, oh, that's interesting. Have a look at that. I rang up this guy and I got talking to him. And he said, yeah. And he said, um, 25 hours, you need 25 hours minimum. But he said, I'll tell you one thing. The only person I've ever known to get it in 25 hours is my son. He said, I don't know anyone has ever got it. You need more than that. But that's your officially what you need. So I said, well, that's grand. I'll go over and get a few lessons. So this will be my third time over. I'm 11 hours off to 25. But not only that, I met a friend of mine over there. I met a guy who's now a friend of mine who won the Cavan song contest from Drahada called Ephraim Clark. Great songwriter, great singer. Um, I've even gigged with him over there in Portugal. we become the best of friends. And the instructor over there, Malcolm Howland from Lincolnshire, I've become a very good friend of his. And I just have a network out there. Another happy accident, you know? When I go out there, I rent this beautiful villa for €40 euro a night. He gives me his car, his scooter, and I have, a, I have a ball. And I go down and gig with him whenever he's gigging. I, don't, I said, I don't want any money for it. I just want to I do it. And he borrows a base off a neighbour and we go down and, and have it. the crack. It's just great. It's great. He wants to give me... I said, no, no, Matt. I know, Effie, that's your gig. I'm doing... I'm on my holidays. I'm doing this for, for fun, you know. The crack. And not only that, but Jesus, I tell you what. He introduced me to the fellow who wrote Fireman Sam and did all the TV shows with him. He introduced me to this fellow called Own Window, who was the Kiss FM DJ, who interviewed me down there on Kiss FM Algarve and went all over the world. He rang Cliff Richard up and said, hello, Cliff, are you around? Oh, you're in Europe? Oh, that's no good. I wanted you down here. I want you to meet a guy from Ireland called Ken Doyle from Bennett Hill. <laughs> and he said, All right. And I said, No, if he's down, when you're back, we'll give him, if he be over again, we'll give him a call. And he, I said, Would he have come down? He said, will be down. He was down for Effie. Ephraim. He came down when Ephraim was playing. And he said, I've a friend coming in now. I'm going to surprise you, Effie. Next thing the door opened, Effie was in Mark's Liverage. I really fucking and he, yeah, yeah. he he walked in and he was doing one of a songs he wrote a, a fun song about Donald Trump to uh, the the, uh, the boxer you know yeah. my name is Donald Trump and I inherited daddy's money and all this kind of yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. fun song and there's Cliff singing harmonies with him and he said it was surreal Cliff Richard's in it and oh, then yeah. he says I'll oh, ring Bonnie Tyler he rings Bonnie Tyler Bonnie's not there she's in Ireland you know he knows all these people and he said you know and because he's such a well got well like guy they would come down if they were there in town, you know, to visit. Wow,
0: what a life, what a life. You
1: know, it's just, again, happy accident's it's just, it's just, you know. I mean, if, if you don't try as well, that's one bit of advice. If you don't try, you will never do anything. Even no. if you fail, it doesn't matter. Try.
0: If you never try, the answer will always be no. That's
1: absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you what, I go in, and I go in totally open-handed, open-armed, you know. I'm not going in, I have no axe to grind or anything like that if I want to do something lucky enough if, I, if it doesn't work with the first person I'll try the next person and when I get the person that I will work with then I'll say yeah we'll, we'll do it you know that type of thing you know I wouldn't just say ah this is no good you know and give up I also think um, because the what they call the snowflake generation I find younger people these days they don't have any staying power they kind of they give up too easy you know mm. Like, they they don't have any stand for... Unfortunately, I know a couple of young lads through my sons who have taken their own life because they broke up with their girlfriend and stuff like that. When we broke up with our girlfriends, and it was all puppy love, a kiss and a cuddle in the corner, I mean, we felt shit, but we just sucked it up and got on with it. I mean, it wasn't easy. You know, you're still kind of bruised and all. But you'd never, ever think of, of going the extra mile. I've even written a song about that. I, it's, only, it's only a few months old. I haven't done anything with it yet, you know. Um, I've written a song about about that. I've also written a song about um, rehab because I was in there. A friend of mine was in rehab. I had to go in and give my spiel about <laughs> which is a very interesting thing as well. And I've written a kind of a hymn as well, like a gospel hymn there. And uh, they're just the last three things I've written. You know, like, put their... They, they're kind of like I like to write songs of substance rather than but I I write other ones I write throw away pops as well but you know I prefer for my soul satisfaction I like to write songs of substance you know that people would get something out of and it might help them you know
0: you're a unique man. You have a unique story. You're just a deadly human being. I'm delighted well, I got the interview. I'm delighted to meet you and just have this conversation. Your gaff is amazing. You're <laughs> an absolute legend.
1: I tell you what, the, the ga I'm said, I bought this in 88 and I said, six months hard work. I'm still working on it. <laughs> it's well, a my mother, canvas. My mother used to say to me when I was a young lad, she used to say, blessed are the cracked for they let in the light, you know? Oh, yeah. And I think it was about 10 when I understood what you were talking Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But when I'm up on stage of that, they they leave all the announcements to me because blessed are the cracked. Yeah, yeah. And when I go out, I go out to have a bit of crack with people. People get enough shit in their life day by day, news, prime time. When they go out, they don't want to be reminded of that. They want to have fun, and that's what I do my best to provide. And thankfully, it is that because I'm the cracked. I'm not self-conscious that I couldn't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like we're here for a party. Let's go. You know. And it's been working. For the last forty-one years,
0: absolutely bagatelle.
1: Ken Doyle and people come up to me sometimes, and say to me, "Jesus, you are an amazing frontman. Where did you learn that?" I say, eh, "Garda Sheikana." What the Garda I said, "When I was a young lad on my motorbike, with no tax for insurance, and you were stopped, you had to have a convincing story. <laughs> Why did I tell you guys Here's the story." <laughs> <laughs>
0: Ken Doyle, we leave it at that. Thanks very much for your time and your absolutely amazing
1: story. Listen, not at all. Thanks for this. It's uh, it's gas. You know, like uh, as I say, it's like a good friends of ours who passed away, Joe Dolan and Big Tom McBride, and they were good friends of each other. And I remember uh, one night we were um, we were getting an award in London from the Irish World, and Joe was getting an award and Tom was getting an award. And we were down talking to Joe and Tom comes in and he goes, oh, it's up the room. And Joe said, what's this? And he sings over to Tom, four country roads, winding to a tower in County Galway. And Tom looks over and goes, it's you, it's you, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> and what I always say when I'm introducing the song that Liam wrote for Joe Dolan, which was she doesn't live here anymore. The likes of them will never be again. The likes of me will never be again because I'm from an era. My era's is long. I don't have a future. I have a past. You know what I mean? Yeah people now have a future and whatever they do make the most of it and always remember 250 million chances to one that you're going to get born and if you do get born enjoy it
0: Uh, happy accident I love it I love it you're an absolute legend
1: no bother man it's a pleasure